started last, well, wasn't last week, wasn't the week before, two, three weeks ago, we started into the end of Paul's first missionary journey, and I think I marked where we left off. We're going to back up a little bit uh, and go over a little bit more of what we talked about the first time and kind of tie it in with what we talked about the last time. So we were in the middle of Lystra, and it's, and it's uh, the starting in verse number uh, 14. Well, it's actually verse number 8 where they started off in uh, when they got to Lystra. And we're going to read from there down to verse number 20. Acts 14 and verse number 8. And there sat a, man, there was, there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who, had never, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands under the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles of Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up, came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So this is the Lystra stop, and we had uh, pretty much covered uh, most of the Lystra stop before, and so we won't go through all of that again, but I do want to go back to Paul's message, which begins in verse number 14. They, or just to remind you that they, they, they come through Lystra, and they began to... Uh, they began the ministry in Lystra with just an initial healing. And they, they find this lame man, and, and it was likely that he had been teaching for a while, and this lame man had been, had been hearing it and hearing it. And Paul looks at him, and I find it very interesting, the, the, the phrasing here, that, he had, that Paul perceived that he had the faith to be healed. So this was some sort of an evident faith that the man uh, showed and displayed that Paul could recognize he has faith to be healed. And, and that was why Paul uh, performed the miracle. Again, uh, as we've seen, mar- miracles have happened all through the book of Acts. They're not at the whim of an apostle. They're not at the whim of... It's not, a, it's not like they have a utility belt with... Uh, you know, Batman's got a utility belt with all these little tinctures and, 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 and concoctions and stuff. And, and the apostle Paul wanders around with a, uh, an apost- apostolic utility belt and he can pull out, you know, uh, gas that will give you, you know your sight back, or uh, a grappling hook so that you can... Well, he did have an Easter basket because he, he was lured out of, a, out of a window one time, but he, that's all he carried with him was the basket. But uh, the, the, um, the, the, the healings and the miracles that were done were done solely at the will of God when God decided this is going to bring uh, honor and glory to me. Now, what we see here is that this healing didn't lead to the same results as we normally would see. We would go back and, st- and, and we look at 
all of the different times that people were healed just in the book of Acts, uh, that usually led to conversions, it usually led to great revival. And yet here it leads to some, some sort of chaos because the beginning in verse number 11, the people recognized this as a, they did recognize it as a miraculous healing, but they saw it not from, not from Jehovah God, but from, uh, from Zeus, uh, from, uh, from the, the, the gods of, uh, of Greek mythology. And they, they, and they, they didn't believe Paul uh, about coming from, from the one true God. And they began to treat Paul and Barnabas as gods themselves, and they began to worship these people. Uh, and they believed that the gods had come to earth and were in their midst. And last time we looked at it, uh, it explained a little bit about why they, uh, why they may have done this, these things and, and some, some legends and things during that time. We won't go back into those things. But what Paul decided to do beginning in verse number 14 was obviously the right thing to do. He had to persuade them. But notice what he did, and I brought this up last time. And instead of preaching about Jesus, verses 14 through 18 talk about God. Talk about the one true God. Because before you can understand Jesus, you have to understand God. Which is why, I think, many times they would start off in a Jewish synagogue before they went to the Gentiles, because at least the Jews already had a fundamental, uh, rudimentary understanding of a one true Jehovah God. They just had to make this, the quick connection that, that Jesus is the, the incarnation of God himself. He's not, just, he's not another God. He is God, and he has uh, revealed himself in Jesus Christ. But what we see here is that he goes to a truly pagan town, and he does the, he's preaching Jesus. Uh, we see that uh, he heals a man, and instead of the, the crowd saying, wow, this man has the power of God, they said, this man is a God, and the guy who's with him is Zeus. And so uh, what we read tonight, uh, saying that they were, uh, Barnabas was Jupiter, and Paul was Mercurius, and those would be the, uh, the, the, the Latin names, the Greek name would be Greek, uh, I'm sorry, the Greek names would be Zeus and Hermes, which we might recognize a little bit, a little bit more, uh, more consistently, just in other readings that we've done. And so they began proclaiming in their native language, the gods have come among us. We have to do this right. Remember, there were legends about how they missed it times before. And so the priest of Zeus comes out, and he's bringing an ox. They're going to do a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, and they're bringing garlands for them to wear, and there's going to be this big procession and a parade, and it's a big deal. And at some point in this, Paul and Barnabas realize they're not excited about Jesus. They're excited about me. They're excited about Barnabas. This is not going the way that it's supposed to go. Uh, probably because they were speaking their native language and Paul did not speak that language and so it took him a while to figure out what was going on. But as soon as he does, he, he stops it and notice in verse, numbers, verse number 18, they scarcely restrain. I mean, they, they, they are, the, the people are pushing to sacrifice unto them, to worship them, and Paul is doing everything he can to stop them from worshiping him and, turn, and redirect that worship to God and he, can, he scarcely does it. He barely gets that across. But I want to look at this message in verses 14 through 18 again. And I know we did some of this already, but I want to, I want to go, kind of go back into this and, and unpack it a little bit more. So once Paul and Barnabas realized what was happening, they quickly tried to stop it. And so he begins his message in verse number 15. And it's, a, it's basically a three-point outline. Number one, he says, we are men. We're not gods. We're men. We're just like you. He says there in verse number 15, he says, we also are men of like passions with you. There's nothing supernatural about us. 
Uh, I'm hungry just like you're hungry. I'm sweating just like you're sweating. I, um, I have bad breath in the morning just like you have bad breath in the morning. There's nothing special about us. We're going to go to bed tonight and we're going to sleep because our bodies need rest just like your bodies need rest. Uh, we did not ascend, descend from heaven. We will not ascend back into heaven when we leave this place. We are just like you. Uh, so don't honor us. We are, number two then, because we are only men, we are just messengers. We are not the message. I'm not the big deal. I'm here to tell you about the big deal. The message is Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse number 15 saying there, uh, we also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God. Why are we here? To deliver a message, to preach unto you, not to be worshiped. We're not here to receive your worship. We're here to direct you to the one who, who deserves your worship, Jesus Christ. But seeing that they did not understand Jesus because they did not understand God, he has to back it up, if you will, uh, and, and begin to teach them kind of the kindergarten uh, b- basics of religion. And so he says, in the, his third point of his, of his message here is to turn to the true living God. He, he says there at the end of verse 15, uh, preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities. The word vanities there means empty things. He says, I want you to turn from these, these, these empty pursuits, these worthless, vain, uh, uh, waste of your time uh, type of, type of uh, activities. And he says, uh, turn from the vanities and unto the living God. Not some legend, not some wooden idol, not some golden statue. I want you to turn to the true, living, breathing, active uh, God in heaven. And, and notice what he says. This is, not the, this is the God who made heaven and earth. He made the sea. He made all things that are therein. Uh, and this was, to, uh, this was to separate him uh, from the, the Greek god Zeus. Uh, I read the statement to you that... Um, uh, uh, philosopher Aeschylus said, Zeus is ether, Zeus is earth, Zeus is sky, Zeus is totality of things and what, it above them, and what is above them. So their idea was Zeus is everywhere around us. Kind of like I was at pantheism where you know, God is in nature and God is everywhere around you. And, and that, that's kind of the idea that they had about Zeus. God, uh, Zeus is, is the ether and Zeus is the sky and Zeus is the, all these things. And Paul is saying, God is not sky, and God is not water, and God is not all these things. God made the sky. God made the water. God made the land. God made you. God is not the tree. God made the tree. In fact, God spoke the tree into existence. Uh, God is not the fish. God made that fish. And all the idols that men try to make to, to uh, liken unto the Creator uh, were actually created by the Creator. And that's what Paul has to... Has to uh, um, refute, but turn, uh, to kind of pry that out of their thinking. And we can see that that's not an easy task, seeing that after this message, he still barely stops them from doing, doing a sacrifice. He says, number two, not only has God has created the earth and created all things, but he has allowed men to walk in their own ways. We go down to verse number 16, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. So they didn't have an understanding, a fundamental understanding of who God is. And so what God in his mercy allowed them to do was go on in their error. So to contrast and understand that, when Israel would go away from God, he would punish them. But he never punished other nations for worshiping the false gods because they didn't know any better. Uh, he never punished them for uh, worshiping Baal. He never, he never uh, sent locusts and, 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 uh, and hornets and all the different plagues that he would send 
to the children of Israel. Now, he would punish other nations for how they treated Israel, but he never uh, punished the nations for how they, they didn't worship God, for redirecting their praise uh, towards some wooden statue or creature. But he did do that with Israel. Why? Because Israel was God's chosen people, because they were given the, uh, they were given the, 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 the first chance, if you will, of the gospel. I think about how Paul says, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew, and then also to the Greek, meaning that it, not that the Jews are more important, but they are the ones who were given first, and so they had a bit of a head start. And so, to whom much is given, much is required. And so Paul is saying here to these people, God has been patient with you. He has allowed you to walk in your own ways. But then notice what it says here in verse number, uh, the, the next verse here. He did not leave them completely in the dark, being verse number 18, uh, verse number uh, 17. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So uh, God was not hiding from them. He was not saying, I'm only Israel's God, and I'm going to hide myself and blind every other person. He did leave, uh, he did leave uh, evidence that, that there is a true God. And, if there, and there were times, and we, and we read through the Old Testament, and we see uh, Jewish proselytes, Gentiles, who had uh, converted to Judaism because they realized there is a one true God. And then there, there are several examples of that. So we see many examples of Gentiles uh, converting uh, and worshiping the one true God before uh, Acts, but it wasn't as it wasn't as common. It wasn't as as, as uh, widespread as what we see as, as Paul is preaching to the Gentiles in a, in a kind of in a in a, a trailblazer uh, fashion. But uh, he didn't. So he didn't hide himself. And so how did God reveal Himself in creation by doing good, by giving rain, uh, by giving fruit, uh, fruitful seasons there, and, and filling our hearts with food and gladness. Think about when Paul said in Romans 1.19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, or it's revealed in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Think about it. The invisible things are clearly seen. That's what Paul is saying. He's, he's, he's doing a bit of a play on words saying, you can see things that you can't see. Wait a minute. If you can't see it, then you shouldn't be able to see it, right? I mean, by definition, if it's invisible, you shouldn't be able to see it. But Paul is explaining the invisible things are clear. It's obvious. It's right there in front of your face. Do you remember, uh, I, was it back in the 90s or whatever? I don't know if it's still a thing now. But remember those pictures that they would do? And it looked like someone just like threw a bunch of paint. But then if you like stood there and crossed your eyes and stood five feet away or whatever, and then sometime there might be some picture. How many know what I'm talking about? I could never get those things. How, anybody here like you're a wizard? You just walk up and you're like, oh, yeah, it's a horse. And like Anybody like that? Okay, just like Trish and Cindy, that's it. So they're standing there like, yeah, there it is right there. And then my mom and my dad would, would see him in the mall and we're standing there and, and you know, I'm like tilting my head a little bit, trying to find this thing. And they're like, yeah, see right there, there's the horse. And then, nope, still not seeing it. Let's go get the food court. You know, let's, let's do something else because I can see that, but I can't, I can't see that and it's wasting my time. Or eventually, if they keep going, and you're like, oh yeah, there it is. Until they make you prove it, and then you realize you don't really see it. But it's clearly seen to some people and to other people. They're looking at the same exact thing and just not seeing it. Why is that? Well, uh, that's, that's how God has, has uh, revealed himself to some people. 
And so uh, these, these, uh, he, go, he goes on in Romans 1. He says that the visible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And this is how all people of the world stand before God without an excuse, without saying, well, I never got a chance uh, to be saved, so therefore God is unjust to send, to send me to hell. No, he's saying right there, he's saying that you can clearly see the invisible God. How? By under, uh, you can understand him by the things that are made. You can understand his Godhead, his eternal power, through his creation. The, so the uh, Psalms tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so all people are without excuse. Sometimes people will ask, well, what about the people in the, the deepest, darkest jungles of South America and, and out in the, the, the African safari that have never heard the name of Jesus? Uh, how, can they, how, can, how can they be judged uh, for their sin? That's what, that's what Paul is explaining here. Uh, there, we're, we're all without excuse. Every single one of us are without excuse. And we won't get into the, 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 the just, uh, justification and all that stuff tonight. But what Paul is trying to explain to them is, you've got to understand who the real God is. There's only one, and it's not me, and it's not my buddy Barnabas. And Paul is backing up to the fundamental belief in one true God, and that has to be present before salvation can take place. We can't just talk people in and introduce them to Jesus and have no, under back, uh, no other background information. We can't say, well, let me tell you about Jesus. I've heard people trying to trick people into getting saved. Like, I'm going to start praying, and I'm going to ask you to just repeat after me like it's a magic spell. And that's not how it works. You, you, don't, you don't just meet Jesus, and all of a sudden it's all good. You have to understand who Jesus is. If it was just, if it was just saying some words, uh, then why don't we just hypnotize everybody and, and get, them, you know, get them to be saved? Uh, the devils believe in Jesus, but they're not, they're not saved. And so there, there's got to be more to it than just simply, oh, I believe in Jesus. So there's, there's, there's cultures even today with multiple gods, hundreds of gods, and they're quick to accept Jesus along with all the other gods that they have. And so they have to understand, you, he's not one of many ways. You can't cover all of your bases there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And so if you're going to add Jesus and someone else, some other God to that, it doesn't work. It's, it's, it's been voided. And so uh, Paul is trying to clear this up with them, that Jesus is the revelation of God, but you must understand who that God is first. And so this is a clear uh, one of the first examples of true pagans in the New Testament because there's no fundamental belief in one true God. Uh, unlike the Jews who only need to make a connection between God and Jesus. Uh, then what we, so what we see is that the end of this, uh, and end of this, uh, this message, the result is not what you'd expect. I mean, this is one of the first, what we might call a dud message. Like, he preached a great message. I love, I've been really enjoying digging, uh, digging out the messages in, in Acts as we've been going through it and reading and trying to understand how they're, how they're presenting their thoughts. And this is a great one. I mean, Paul's one of the greatest speakers in the, uh, preachers in the Bible, and yet here, he doesn't get the, the, the desired result. What happens? Well, he barely stops them from sacrificing. But number two, this crowd that was just about ready to worship him and offer sacrifices to him now want to offer him as a sacrifice. They've completely turned, and now they want to kill him. They want to do everything they can. And notice who stirs that, verse number 19 there they are, again, the Jews, and notice where they come from, Antioch. We just read about the Antioch Jews. We just read about how, um, how, they, did not, how they rejected Paul 
uh, and how they tried to kill him. Remember, um, just back it up, I think it was either Antioch or Iconium where there was a rumor that he was going to be assassinated, and so they quickly got away without, without harm. Here they catch up to him, and they persuade the people, verse number 19, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Now, either they're really bad shots, and they just wounded him and made him look like he was dead, or they really killed him and God resurrected him. And I tend to believe that, that they actually killed him there. I, I think that uh, if you're mad enough to kill someone by throwing a rock, I was about to ask, you know, has anybody ever thrown a rock at someone to try to kill you know, I don't, don't raise your hand if you have. But um, I imagine if you're so angry to kill someone by throwing rocks at them, because I don't know, I, I won't also ask how many rocks do you have to be hit with to finally die, because I've thrown a rock at someone before. But I imagine you've got to throw a lot of rocks at someone to kill them. If you're that mad you're going to make sure you did the job right, you know? And I imagine he's like being buried in this pile of rocks because the, it's not just one or two guys throwing them at him. It's all over, and this is a very common practice. And so I don't think that they just kind of wounded him. They gave him a, a flesh wound. They knocked him out. He was unconscious. I think he died. Now, whether he did or did not, that's not the point of this, of this story, but they tried to kill him because they didn't like, think about it, what did, why did they try to kill him? Was he coming in trying to overthrow the government? Was he committing some crime? No. The most insulting thing he did was saying, your religion is messed up. And they tried to kill him. Uh, you are trying to uh, change people's hearts and minds. And they tried to kill him for it. So it's crazy how, how uh, people respond, how, how hostile people can respond to the gospel. You see, there's a hostile rejection. And so they stoned Paul and left him for dead outside of the city, almost in a way saying, okay, you say you're not a god, you're a man, let's find out. Let's start throwing rocks at them. And then we see as they leave, the new Christians that did, there were some that, uh, that, that received the gospel. These new Christians, it says they're gathered around him, and he recovered. He got up, brushed himself off, and crazy of all things, he walked back into the city. Now, no one here has ever been killed by someone else before, right? But imagine if you had been, and God brought you back to life. Would you go back to the place where they just killed you? Like, are you going to try your luck here? You're going to push things? No, I think, I think I'd say, uh, Paul, that, that's the way you don't want to go. You probably want to go that way. I also wonder where Barnabas was here at this time. How did Barnabas get out of it? Because Paul was the one speaking. Barnabas was the one who, was, uh, Barnabas was the one who didn't get stoned. He is in the city somewhere. Maybe he, was a, he, was, he shut his mouth faster, or maybe he got away quicker. I don't know. Uh, how exactly he gets out of it, but Paul here is stoned. He is he is uh, right, gets back up, resurrected, or comes back to consciousness, or whatever you want to say. There, he gets back up, goes back into the city, and spends the night. Again, not the place I want to spend the night in a place where they were just trying. They actually maybe just did kill me. Now maybe he walked back into the city, and people realize like, oh, I thought we killed this guy. Maybe they back off. Maybe they give him some space. I don't know how this all works out. But this is, Paul is, Paul's got some guts. I mean, Paul is bold here. He is, he is uh, not afraid to lay, lay it all on the line uh, for the sake of the gospel. And, but notice what they did. They, they continue their journey. Even something as bad as being killed or nearly killed doesn't stop him from quitting. He continues the journey. Verse number, uh, verse number 20 uh, the, the very end there, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby, which is the last stop on their on their trip before they turn around and head back. It says, and when they had preached the gospel to that city 
and it taught many. They returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Again, they go back to places where they were not well received. And, and again, they still have a desire to see people saved in a place where they had been rejected very forcefully in some of these, in some of these places. So they go back and they head back there to, uh, to Derby. And so I have this called, I call it Stop 6, where they go from Derby on to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They are going to hit up a new, uh, uh, one or two new places and then make their way back to the church. Let me read a little bit and then go back and explain it here. Verse number 22. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord on whom they, had, on whom they believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia, and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. And so here this stop six, I'm calling it Derby and the return trip. They go to Derby, they preach the gospel, and, and taught many literally means that they made many disciples. So this, this, this two-part action here, um, if, you, if you look at it in, the, in a Greek, in a Greek uh, New Testament, it literally means they made many disciples. So they didn't just go and preach and, well, nothing happened here and talk to a bunch of people. No, they, they saw converts in Derby because this is the main activity of missions here and abroad, everywhere. Missions is preaching the gospel. And it's not just the gospel for salvation. It's the gospel for Christian living. It's the gospel I refer to as we took communion. It's not just the gospel that's good enough to get you saved. It's the gospel to live the Christian life as well. And that's what Paul is preaching here. And this, and this process of making disciples indicates that they spent some time here in Derby. It doesn't tell us exactly how long that they spent, but they did spend enough time to really get a church going. Now, I like what they did was we get to verse number 21 as they go back. I like what they're doing when they go back to these places. Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, all three places they had to leave under dangerous circumstances. Varying degrees of that. They tried to kill them in one place. Uh, They killed them in one place. And uh, they they at least ran them out of town in in the other place. But Paul and Barnabas go back to these places. Maybe they've been gone long enough and it's a big enough place that they can slip in unaware, uh, under the the radar. I don't know exactly how uh, that would have been. But notice he does four things when they go there. We read in verse number 21. They did four things. They confirmed the souls of the disciples. They exhorted those disciples to continue in the faith, that we must, uh, that we must through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. And next, verse 23, they ordained elders, and then they prayed with them. They uh, prayed and, uh, with fasting, and they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So they confirmed them. That means that they strengthened them through their teaching. They didn't just teach them the gospel. They didn't just get them saved. They also uh, brought them along in a, in a spiritual journey. They exhorted them, meaning that they encouraged them to persevere. Why? Because they explained to them, hard times are necessary. You just watched me be stoned, right? This is kind of something you might expect. Uh, it's not going, the Christian life is not going to be an easy, uh, happy-go-lucky life. Kind of nowadays today, Christianity is like a fad. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a label that you can wear and you can attract the politicians. I'm a Christian, right? They've never been to church, or they don't, you know, they don't really belong anywhere. But they want that vote, and so they will, they will claim to be a Christian so they can get that, that group of people on their side. Back in this day, that was not into any political advantage to do that. And so, 
uh, we, we see here that, that Paul is encouraging them, hey, persevere, it's going to be tough. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But persevere, stay with it. And then number three, the third thing they do is that they ordained, they appointed church leadership. Now I think that they, the first time they went through, they got, these, they got these converts, they established these little churches, but everybody's a baby Christian. So depending on how long they were gone, maybe they've come back and now they see, all right, who's sticking, who's showing signs of leadership, who is, um, uh, you know, who has kind of just naturally been leading the church. Uh, they, these churches uh, have been going since they've been gone, but now they come and they appoint uh, elders, they appoint uh, church leadership uh, to really uh, keep the church strong and to guide the church and direct the church because that's what an, an elder, uh, a church elder uh, leadership would, would do. And then the last thing that they, they commended them, they committed these new believers to God. Uh, but placing them, literally to place them into the care and the trust of God. Uh, if, when, you, when you think of this, think of acknowledgement, not transferal. Not saying, God, we're, we're placing them from our care into your care, but saying, God, this church is going to only survive by your grace. We're leaving. We don't know if we'll ever come back. We don't know what kind of persecution they're going to face. We know what we face in just the short time we've been here. Give these people the perseverance, the endurance to stick it out regardless of what happens. God, they're in your care. This is your church. These are your people. This is how they leave them. Maybe they're going to come back. Maybe they don't. But at this point in time, this is kind of a goodbye for a long time or forever. Uh, And so they're they're praying that they will continue. So that's Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Then we get down to verse number number, uh, 24. It says that they passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia. And then they preached the word in Perga. And then they went down to Atalia. It really doesn't tell us a lot about what's going on in these places. Atalia was a port city, which is where they would have gone so that they could catch a ship all the way back to Antioch in Syria. When they get to Antioch, and this is where we'll, this is where we'll close at the end of the chapter here, is they get back to Antioch, the, the original sending church. They, the, they gather the church together, and they report what happened. But I want you to notice what they're reporting. Verse number uh, 27. They rehearsed all that God had done with them. What, they, what, what, it, what it's saying there is, they didn't say, this is what we did on our mission trip. Their, their report was, this is what God did with us on our mission trip. You catch the mind shift there? If it's, here, let me tell you what we did while we were on our mission trip. It's all about me. But when you say, let me tell you what God did with me, saying, I was just the messenger. I was just the tool that he used. But let me tell you what he did. We don't praise the hammer for the beautiful craftsmanship. We praise the the man or the woman who holds the hammer for the beautiful craftsmanship. And so in their their praising God, in their uh, directing all of the glory and all of the attention, they're saying it's not, it wasn't us. We almost idolize Paul in the way that he he, he goes through the, throughout the known world preaching, and yet Paul is saying, it wasn't me, not I, but Christ. And he says also then what God had done with them, and then number two, what God had done with the Gentiles. And said uh, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And this is significant. This, this, not just this, this verse, but this whole trip is very significant because as we get into chapter 15, we're going to be... Uh, brought into a big decision time. Do the Gentiles have to convert to Judaism to be saved? Well, 
Paul had just spent, I don't know how long, many months or years, and Barnabas, and others who have gone and others who have heard of these great reports, and they're going to see, you know what? God is doing something with them, and they have not converted to Judaism. They have converted to Christianity. They have become God's people without having to go through the Jewish, the Jewish traditions and the Jewish law. And so this is an important thing. And then what we see is that they remain with the church. And I, and I just like that. They got right back into it, and they just kept on. They wouldn't say, well, all right, we did our thing. We're taking, our, we're taking a break. It's like, all right, now we're getting back into it. They're, they're back into the service. They're back into the, ser- uh, into the, the, the regular church routine of their home church uh, and uh, serving the Lord wherever they may be. Let me give you two takeaways, uh, and then we'll go home. Number one, discipleship matters. Discipleship matters. Paul and Barnabas risked their lives going back to three cities that did not want them there. Why? So that they could disciple converts. They weren't going back the second time to reach new people. They were going back to disciple people that they had reached. Discipleship really, really matters. They wanted to strengthen these young churches. And it's not enough to lead someone to salvation. And it's not enough just to get someone into church. If you pray for someone and you're, and you're, you're inviting them to church and you're sharing Bible verses with them and trying to really get them to, to embrace the faith and you get them to come to church or you get them to, to accept Christ or you even get them baptized, your job's not done. The Great Commission does not stop at win the loss to Christ. The Great Commission's uh, it's, it's a cycle. Not only are we supposed to win them and baptize them, we're supposed to teach them to reproduce, others, uh, reproduce it in other people's lives. And that we have a responsibility as a church and as somewhat discipled and matured believers to turn around and help young and new believers grow in their faith. And by young, not just young as in age, but young as in, in their faith. So you have a res- you you're sitting here. You have a responsibility to help other people behind you. You have a responsibility to disciple another Christian. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the deacon's job or an elder's job or or or, or some. You have a responsibility to disciple young Christians and to be a disciple, to be a disciple and to disciple other Christians. Number two. It is unbiblical to expect the Christian life to be one without troubles. I want to read a passage for you before we go. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, Paul is writing this here to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And just uh, four or five verses there. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10. It says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. He's saying, he's listing all these things that he says, Timothy, you're fully aware of these things. But he says in verse number 11, persecutions. You've known about my persecutions. Afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. There's a promise from God right there. It's not one we want to stamp on a coffee cup. We kind of like the Lord is my shepherd type verses. But here's a promise just as truthful. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. This is continue. You can't stop them from getting worse and worse and worse and more evil and more evil. But continue. It's unbiblical for us to expect the Christian life to be easy. Oh, now that I'm in God's family, 
It's going to be smooth sailing from here. Nope, probably not. And if it is, you might be doing it wrong. I don't know. Uh, we, we, we don't want to ask for trouble. We don't want to ask for heartaches and for tribulations and trials and persecutions. But we, we should not, not expect them. God's, God's blessing doesn't mean that we, we, we won't have trouble or problems. We can't look at someone and say, oh, my life is good right now. I'm blessed. Right? It's a good Christian word to say. I'm blessed. But we, if we're going to say that, I'm blessed, when it's good, we all ought to be able to say it when it's bad. I just found out I have cancer, but I'm blessed. I just found out I lost everything, but I'm blessed. My kids aren't turning out the way that they're supposed to be, but I'm blessed. Because God's blessing isn't the removal of all the problems in my life. Because we think about people like Job. Was God not blessing his life? Yeah. But it didn't look that way from Job's perspective. And so, uh, and so I write this down as well. You don't have to ask for persecution. Don't be like, all right, well, I'm going to pray for persecution. Pray for patience and pray for persecution. Pray that I lose my job. I pray that all my family gets sick. You, know, you don't have to pray for those things. But don't be surprised if it comes either. Because, as, as Paul said there, we're going to, all that live godly shall suffer persecution. It's going to happen. So don't be surprised by that. And in the time, if you find yourself in a time where you're saying, I'm not being persecuted right now. Everything is good. And use that time to strengthen yourself and be ready because we all know if you've lived this life any length of time, you know something's going to happen eventually. And if we are not ready for it, What's going to happen? We're going to say, oh, I thought it was going to be easier than this. I thought it was going to be better than this. Maybe God can't take care of me. Maybe God is, 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 is not in this. And we quit, leave, walk away, whatever it is, because we totally misunderstand. We look at Christianity as this, the, 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 the fix to all of my problems in this life. And that's not how it works. You think about all of Jesus' time on this earth, one of the big messages he was trying to convince people of is, I'm not here to fix this life. I'm here to get you into the next life. That's the thing that they didn't get. That's why on Palm Sunday they rejoiced that the, the, the Messiah King had come until they realized he wasn't coming to rule Jerusalem. He was coming to set up a new kingdom in heaven. And that's Paul's first missionary journey, an incredible trip. I am, I am curious to know one day how many people became believers, heard the gospel, and, and accepted because of this one man on this one trip, and he's going to do it over and over again, just constantly telling people, no doubt there will be scores and scores and maybe millions of people in heaven. And even in a way, uh, we have Paul to thank uh, as well for spreading the gospel, going west instead of east uh, when he wanted to as we get into that. But as we get into next week in chapter 15, and we look at uh, this, this idea of really it's, it's adding, it's legalism, it's adding something to the gospel and making someone... Uh, do something in order to be safe. And uh, Paul is going to use his experiences uh, from his missionary journey to say, no, 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 that's not how this works. Peter's going to jump back in for one more little cameo appearance in Acts and then disappear from the pages of history. But uh, let's pray and uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, I do thank you so much for uh, your word and for the way that it, it is um, practical and applicable. I pray that you would uh, strengthen us and, and encourage us, remind us there's so many lessons here. There's so many different things to remember and to learn and to apply and 
And I pray that you would take the things that we need as the, as the, the, the great physician and do work in our hearts and, and, and apply the things that need to be like the medicine that you know what we need. And, and so I pray that, to, that the things that, that we focus on would, would be the things that you lead us to focus on. May we, may we not get distracted by the things that we consider important or the things that we consider a priority. And may we learn to focus on what you lead us to. May we truly follow you, as Paul did throughout uh, his journey, as uh, he did even in the face of danger, even in the face of death. Uh, may, we be, may we be committed to that as much as he was. It's hard to, to say that, knowing that none of us are, are being confronted the way that Paul was. But I pray that um, we would be found faithful in whatever uh, you choose to, whatever fire you choose to bring us through. May we be found faithful just as Paul was, just as Barnabas was, as all these missionaries and all these great uh, forefathers of our faith. Guide us and protect us tonight and uh, <clears throat> bring us bring us back to our appointed place uh, this week. And God, bring us into uh, appointments with people that would allow, allow us to share the gospel, to share, a, to share a little bit of joy, a little bit of hope, peace, love, whatever it may be that they need. Use us as your vessels. And uh, when good things happen, may we remember to reflect that glory back to you and, and, and realize that it was what you have done through us, and not what we have done ourselves. We give you our, our lives. We give you our hands and our feet, our whole bodies, our minds. And we ask you to use them for your good pleasure. We pray this all in Jesus' name.